Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. So Genesis chapter 12, and we're going to start in verse 1. And it said, God told Abram, leave your country, your family, and your father's home for a land that I will show you. I'll make you a great nation and bless you. I'll make you famous. You'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and those who curse you, I'll curse. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left, just as God said, and Lot left with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left. Abram took his wife and his nephew Lot with him, along with all of the possessions, all of his possessions, and set out for the land of Canaan and arrived safe and sound. Abram passed through the country that at that time was occupied by the Canaanites. God, verse 7, appeared to Abram and said, I will give this land to your children. So Abram built an altar at the place God had appeared to him. So we have in this particular instance a promise that's given to Abram at this point in time. So jump with me to, to Genesis chapter 15. Y'all keeping up so far? Is this all right? Genesis chapter 15, and we'll start at verse 1. It says, after all these things, this word of God came to Abram in a vision. Don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield. Your, your reward will be grand. Abram said, God, master, what use... Are your gifts, as long as I'm childless and Eliezer of Damascus is going to inherit everything? Abram continued, see, you've given me no children, and now a mere house servant is going to get it all. Isn't it kind of like us to just get really overdramatic about things in life? God promises something to us, and then we just kind of, we, we, we're not patient. We get really overdramatic about things. Look, I have no children! Now this, this servant in my house, he's going to get what you, all, all of my inheritance. What's going on? I think a lot of the times we just over-dramatize things in our life, and I think we need to slow down a little bit on that. Um, and so, it says that uh, in verse 4, then God's message came, and he said, don't worry, he won't be your heir. A son from your own body will be your heir. Then he took him outside and said, look at the sky, count the stars. Can you do it? These are going to be your descendants. You're going to have a big family. Now, at this point, I kinda, I've read this many times, and I think you really have to understand what's going on here. God told Abraham to count the stars. He told him to count the stars, right? Now, when God tells you to do something, I've always been under the impression that you kind of do it. So you have to wonder about what point did Abram realize that this couldn't be done? Was he counting the stars and saying 6,356,426,301? I lost count! It can't be done! I mean, do you think that this happened? And then God said, I know it can't be done. Because that is my blessing to you. I'm going to make you a great nation. And Abraham said, okay, I believe. And God declared him set right with himself. Genesis chapter 17, we're going to jump again. I'm telling you, we got a lot of reading going on this morning. We got a lot of reading. 
Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, it says this. When Abram was 99 years old, God showed up and said to him, I am the strong God. Live entirely before me. Live to the hilt. In other words, live to the fullest. I'll make a covenant between us, and I'll give you a huge family. Listen, this is like three, four, five times that we've had this same promise going on, okay? Abraham was 75. Now he's 99. I'm pretty sure Abraham is now getting a little bit upset, a little bit impatient. Overwhelmed, Abram fell flat on his face. Then God said to him, this is my covenant with you. You'll be the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abram, but Abraham, meaning that I'm making you the father of many nations. I'll make you a father of fathers. I'll make nations from you. Kings will rise from you. I'm establishing my covenant between me and you, a covenant that includes your descendants, a covenant that goes on and on and on, a covenant that commits me to be your God and the God of your descendants. And I'm giving you and your descendants this land where you're now camping, this whole country of Canaan to to own forever, and I will be their God. Genesis chapter 18. Just jumping one chapter this time. Starting in verse 1, we read, God appeared to Abraham while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent. It was the hottest part of the day. He looked up and saw three men standing. He ran from his tent to greet them and bowed before them. He said, Master, if it pleases you, stop for a while with your servant. I'll get some water so you can wash your feet and you can rest under this tree. I'll I'll get some food to refresh you on your way since your travels have brought you across my path. They said, certainly. Go ahead. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and he said, hurry, get three cups of our best flour, knead it and make bread. Now, can we remove maybe a little bit of the mystery from this equation? Um, Abraham was promised to have kids, a lot of kids, with his wife Sarah, and this hasn't happened yet. Okay, he was 75 when the first promise was given. He's 99 now. And uh, I think this this is a miracle that's about to take place, but I think there's also something else here. I'm pretty sure that the best way... uh, or perhaps not the best way to romance your wife is to run into the kitchen and tell her to make food. If this was a common occurrence, I can guarantee you that the door was closed on multiple occasions to fulfill that prophecy, okay? You know what I'm saying? I can just see this being an issue in their marriage. I think a lot of times we do things that create problems when God is trying to fulfill promises in our life. I think a lot of times we get in the way of that. I digress. Anyway, um, so verse 7, then Abraham ran to the cattle pen and picked out a calf and gave it to the servant who lost no time getting it ready. Then he got curds and milk, brought them with the calf that had been roasted, set the meal before the men and stood there under the tree while they ate. The men said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? He said, in the tent. One of them said, I'm coming back about this time next year. When I arrive, your wife, Sarah, will have a son. Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21, verse 1. We read this. God visited Sarah exactly as he said he would. God did for Sarah what he promised. Sarah became pregnant and gave Abraham a son in his old age. And at the very time that God had set, Abraham named his son Isaac. In verse 5, we're going to skip verse 4 there. Verse 5 says, Abraham was a hundred years old. When his son Isaac was born. Abraham was a hundred years old. When his son Isaac was born. Abraham. 
given a promise from God. Abraham and Sarah given a promise from God. Story one. Let's go to story two, Genesis chapter 41. I got three of these bad boys to read, so you guys might as well kick back, kick back get comfy, because this is going to be a lot of verses, I'm telling you. You think I'm kidding. We're, we're going to read, all right? Genesis chapter 41. We're going to start at verse 1. This is the story of Joseph. We picked this story up after Joseph had been sold into slavery by his brothers. And he gets to work in in, in, uh, the house of Potiphar. And he gets accused of adultery. So he gets thrown in prison. And while he's in prison, we're going to pick the story up. This is where we're at. Two years passed, and Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile River. Seven cows came up out of the Nile, all shimmering with health, and grazed on the marsh grass. Then seven other cows, all skin and bones, came up out of the river after them and stood by them on the bank of the Nile. The skinny cows ate the seven healthy cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He went back to sleep and dreamed a second time. Seven ears of grain, full-bodied and lush, grew out of a single stalk. Then seven more ears grew up, but these were thin and dried out by the east wind. The thin ears swallowed up the full, healthy ears. Then Pharaoh woke up. When morning came, he was upset. He sent for all the magicians and sages of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but they could not interpret them to him. The head cupbearer then spoke up and said to Pharaoh, I just now remembered something. I'm sorry, I should have told you this long ago. Once when Pharaoh got angry with his servants, he locked me and the head baker in the house of the captain of the guard. We both had dreams on the same night, each dream with its own meaning. It so happened that there was a young Hebrew slave there with us. He belonged to the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams and he interpreted interpreted them for us, each dream separately. Things turned out just as he interpreted. I was returned to my position in the head baker was killed. Now, of course, in the beginning of this passage, we read two years had passed. Now, that's two years had passed since Joseph uh, interpreted the dreams of the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker, okay? It was actually the cupbearer and the baker, but I couldn't remember that off the top of my head. So, two years had passed since then. So, he was in, in, in servitude. He was in a prison of sorts, and then two years had passed after that. So, that's where we pick this story up. Verse 14 Pharaoh at once sent for Joseph. They brought him from the jail cell. He cut his hair, put on clean clothes, and came to Pharaoh. He said, I dreamed a dream, Pharaoh told Joseph. Nobody can interpret it, but I've heard that just by hearing a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered, not I, but God. God will set Pharaoh's mind at ease. Joseph had a pretty good answer there. Verse 17, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, in my dream, I was standing on the bank of the Nile. Seven cows shimmering with health came up out of the river and grazed on the marsh grass. On their heels, seven more cows, all skin and bones came up. I've never seen uglier cows anywhere in Egypt. This is why I love the message translation. Because it really shows you what is going on here, okay? I've never seen uglier cows anywhere in Egypt. That's not in the King James, okay? A little bit of flavor there. Then the seven skinny, ugly cows, okay, then the seven skinny, ugly cows ate up the first seven healthy cows, but you couldn't tell by looking. After eating them up, they were just as skinny and ugly as before. Then I woke up. In my second dream, I saw seven ears of grain, full-bodied and lush, growing out of a single stalk, and right behind them, seven other ears, shriveled thin and dried out by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the full ears. I've told all of this to the magicians, but they can't figure it out. 
Verse 25, Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's two dreams both mean the same thing. God is telling Pharaoh what he is going to do. The seven healthy cows are seven years, and the seven healthy ears of grain are seven years. They are the same dream. The seven sick and ugly cows that followed them up are seven years, and the seven scrawny ears of grain dried out by the east wind are the same. Seven years of famine. Verse 28, the meaning is what I said earlier. God is letting Pharaoh in on what he's going to do. Seven years of plenty are on their way throughout Egypt, but on their heels will come seven years of famine, leaving no trace of the Egyptian plenty. As the country is emptied by famine, there won't be even a scrap left of the previous plenty. The famine will be total. The fact that Pharaoh dreamed this twice emphasizes God's determination to do this and to do it soon. Verse 33, are you still with me? All right. Good answer. Verse 33. So Pharaoh needs to look for a wise and experienced man and put him in charge of the country. Then Pharaoh needs to appoint managers throughout the country of Egypt to organize it during the years of plenty. Their job will be to collect all the food produced in the good years ahead and stockpile the grain under Pharaoh's authority, storing it in the towns for food. This grain will be held back to be used later during the seven years of famine that are coming on Egypt. This way, the country won't be devastated by the famine. This seemed like a good idea to Pharaoh and his officials. Verse 38, then Pharaoh said to his officials, isn't this the man we need? Are we going to find anyone else who has God's spirit in him like this? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, you're the man for us. God has given, I, I could stop and preach, you're the man for us. I could really stop and talk about how every person here has a destiny, but I can't do it because we have a whole lot more reading to do. Lord, help us all. God has given you the inside story. No one is as qualified as you in experience and wisdom. From now on, you're in charge of my affairs. All my people will report to you only as king will I be over you. Verse 41, so Pharaoh commissioned Joseph. I'm putting you in charge of the entire country of Egypt. Then Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his finger and slipped it on Joseph's hand. He outfitted him in robes of the best linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He put the second in command chariot at his disposal and as he rode, people cheered. Joseph was in charge of the entire country of Egypt. It's a pretty big deal, people. That's, that's a pretty big honor. Pharaoh told Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but no one in Egypt will make a single move without your stamp of approval. Then Pharaoh gave Joseph an Egyptian name, which means God speaks and he lives. And Joseph took up his responsibilities over the land of Egypt. In verse 46, Joseph was 30 years old when he went to work for Pharaoh the king of Egypt. So you've got Abraham and Sarah given a promise. And you've got Joseph who was given a position of authority. Exodus chapter 2. We'll pick this story up at, at 11. Of course, we all know Moses plucked from the river and uh, raised by Pharaoh, raised in, in a palace and, and with all of the trappings of being raised as royalty. So he had a pretty good life. Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. It said, one day he, he being Moses, went and saw his brothers in their hard labor. Then he saw an Egyptian hit a Hebrew, one of his relatives. He looked this way and then that. When he realized there was no one inside, he killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. Verse 13. The next day he went out there again. Only this time two Hebrew men were fighting. He spoke to the man who started and said, why, why are you hitting your neighbor? The man shot back, who do you think you are telling us what to do? You're going to kill me the way you killed that Egyptian? Then Moses panicked. Word's gotten out. People know about what I've done. 
Verse 15, Pharaoh heard about it and tried to kill Moses, but Moses got away to the land of Midian. He sat down by a well. Verse 16, the priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came and drew water, filling the troughs and watering the sheep, their father's sheep. Then some shepherds came, chasing, chasing the girl off, girls off, but Moses came to the rescue and helped them water their sheep. Verse 18, when they got home to their father, he said, that didn't take long. Why are you back so soon? An Egyptian, they said, rescued us from a bunch of shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the sheep. He said, so where is he? Why, didn't you leave? Why did you leave him behind? Why didn't you invite him so he can come have something to eat with us? So Moses agreed to settle down there with the man who then gave his daughter Zipporah to him for his wife. And they had a son. Verse 23, many years later, the king of Egypt died. Many years later, key, key verse. Many years later, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. Their cries for relief from their hard labor ascended to God. God listened to their groanings. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw what was going on with Israel, and he understood. Last verse. Now, this is a real long one. Exodus chapter 7, verse 7. Moses was 80, and Aaron was 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. 97 verses. Eight chapters. Three books. Three stories. Three people, one common theme. Abraham, 75 when given a promise by God. 100 years old when his promise came to. Joseph, 17 years old when he was sold into slavery. 30 years old when he stepped into his position of authority. 13 years of waiting. Moses, 40 years old when he left Egypt for the first time. 80 years old when he stepped into his purpose that God had for his life. 40 years of waiting. 97 verses, 8 chapters, 3 people, 3 stories. One common element, waiting. You can all relate after reading 97 verses on a Sunday morning, what waiting is all about. But there's one element here. It's waiting. It's waiting. Waiting is a whole different animal. I I think I, I would go so far as to say that we are not genetically predisposed to wait. I have two kids. Over the past five years, I've never heard one of them say, Later! What do they say? Now! And I'll say that. We we have a hard time waiting. My good friend, Jason Murley, is building a house. Wants to build a nice house for his family. It's a beautiful house. I've seen the designs. I've seen the progress on Facebook. Ask Mr. Murley if he would rather have his house now or later. We we don't like to wait. We hate waiting. We hate it. I was speaking to a young lady who was kind of perplexed at not necessarily her life, but some aspects. Her siblings were getting married. Her friends were getting married. 
She was wondering when it's going to happen for her. Now you ask that young lady, would you rather get married now or later? We don't like to wait, but it's something that we do. Do you realize, do you realize that the average person spends six months waiting at red lights? I found that, I found that statistic on Google, so it must be true. Do you realize that the average person spends five years waiting in lines? You ever been to a Walmart and there's two lines that are open and there's 97 that are closed down? We hate waiting. We hate it. I've been married for nine years. I've done the mathematical calculations. I have spent three of those years standing by the door waiting for my wife to finish getting ready. We wait, we wait, we wait. And we hate, we hate waiting, don't we? Isn't waiting the worst? Waiting is the worst. Do you realize that when I go to a movie, it's predicated on which one has the longest line? I, it's just the way we are. We, we don't like to wait one bit. Think about it. I mentioned earlier that Kids, you can tell in kids real easy, man, they, they don't like the way. They want everything now, they want it on their timetable, and they have no concept of time because their concept of waiting is asking every 30 seconds. It does not get better as you get older. How do I know? When was the last time you saw somebody walk up and say, look what my cell phone can do? You ever had that happen? No, people are going, stupid cell phone won't load, and text messages are working, and I just don't understand how slow it is, and I hate AT&T, and I don't understand. Can you give it a second to come back from space and retrieve data and put it in your phone? Is that too much to ask? You're sitting, in a, sitting working on a computer, and it's so slow, and it's just taking like five seconds to load a page, and nothing works. Do you remember the first era of internet? When you had to dial up. You remember that? It took 20 minutes to connect, and then you just get on, and you start loading a page. Ten minutes later, it's almost there. You can almost read the first line. Somebody picks up the phone, and it kicks you offline. Hey, I'm online. Who's on the phone? We've got lightning fast internet speed now, and it's still not enough. We hate waiting. This page took three seconds to load. I'm never going back there again. I mean, you think about it. We hate waiting. We hate waiting. We hate waiting. Hate it. Why don't we like to wait? Well, I think it's genetically predisposed. I think, I think a lot of the times it's, there's a disconnect between what our head knows and what our heart wants. I think a lot of times we've got the head knowledge. You know, God gave me a promise. God wants, me to put, wants to put me in a position of authority. God, God wants to 
uh, place me in my destiny so that I can do great things for I mean, all these great things. I mean, Westside has a promise, and, and you look around here today, and, and, and then you look back at pictures when there were 2,000 people here, and, and you, there's a disconnect. We know there's a promise. We know that God wants to do something in our lives. We know that God wants to do something in our church, but, but it, doesn't, it doesn't connect here. It doesn't connect here. Psalm chapter 42, verse 5 says this. This is the message. Uh, paraphrase of this. It says, why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? This is probably one of my favorite verses. This is one of the most beautifully crafted verses ever created. Why? Because it shows the battle that takes place within each one of us when we know that God has something more for our lives, but we're sitting and waiting. Why am I so discouraged? You ever had that discussion with yourself? You know God has more for you. You know that this church should be packed out. And why am I so discouraged? Why am I so down on myself? It's because we know what God has in store for us. But our heart tells us otherwise. Our heart is telling us it's never going to happen. We're like Abraham, constantly complaining to God. You said you would give me children. It's been 10 years, and I've got nothing. And now this servant is going to get everything I have, and my lineage will, be, will die off. It's done. And we know what God says. But our heart is telling us otherwise. That's why we don't like waiting. Why are you so downcast? But we do a lot of waiting. God, if, I mean, I only picked three stories that I could give you story of. The entire story of the Israelites is a story of waiting. I just didn't have enough time to read that many verses. Job is a story of waiting. The story of Jesus is a story of waiting to fulfill his destiny. We have a snapshot of Jesus when he's a toddler. And the next thing we know, he's 30 years old. What did he do during that time? He waited. He waited. He waited. We hate waiting because there's a disconnect. And we do a lot of waiting in life. God calls us to do a lot of waiting. But there's two things you need to know about waiting. First thing is this. That waiting changes you. Waiting changes you. Whether you know it or not, if you're waiting on God to do something in your life, it's the wait that really matters. It's not what you get at the end. It's the wait. Because it's in that time that God does something incredible in our lives. Now, there's a lot of people in here who, who, who might be a little down on themselves, might be a little depressed, might, might feel like things aren't moving as fast as they should. They're, they're on God's timetable, not on their timetable, and it drives them nuts. And they want to leave. And sometimes people give up. I can remember my dad telling a story, and, and I might butcher this story, so forgive me if I do. But, and if I remember correctly, there was something like a pile of concrete that needed, needed to be busted up. And he's told this story several times. And he was out there, and he was hitting this pile of concrete with a, a sledgehammer and just wailing away at that thing forever. And he put the sledgehammer down and gave up. This might not have been my dad, it might have been somebody else that he was telling the story about, but we'll go with my dad. It sounds good today, right? Okay. And so he, give, he, he gave up for just a second, and some old man came over and hit it once, and it broke. So a lot of times we give up. There's people who give up. Look around you today, okay? I'm the youth pastor. I could say crazy things because I'm not really all there, all right? 
people have left this church because they didn't want to wait. Can I just be honest with you folks? We left that church because that pastor, he just took, you voted him in! You're telling me God changed his mind halfway through? You kidding me? That pastor over there, he's doing, you, you voted. The Holy Spirit guided you. You didn't like the waiting. You didn't like what happened in the waiting. So many people give up when they're so close to getting their promise, to stepping into a position of authority, to stepping into their purpose and destiny in life. They, they give up. They're so, because the waiting drives us nuts, but it's the waiting that changes us. It's the waiting that changes us. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, what does it say? But they that wait on the Lord will renew their strength. Run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. It changes us. I got news for you. If you are tired, if you are worn out, if you are down, if you are depressed, if you're feeling bad about yourself, if you're stuck in a waiting place, guess what? When you wait, God renews your strength. It doesn't happen when you leave. It happens when you wait. It's in that waiting moment that God does an incredible work in your life. Some of us, we feel like we're in a desert place. We feel like we're just, we're stuck in limbo. Think about Moses. He went from a palace living in luxury to living in a desert for 40 years. He stepped into his purpose, then he lived in the desert for another 40 years. It's difficult, but God changes us in those times. He uses that time as a time of refreshing, time of reflecting. Time to mold our hearts to heal old wounds so that when we do step into that place of authority, when we do step into that promise, when we do step in to our destiny. Second thing about waiting is it changes the world. It changes the world. Because when you step into your promise, when you step in, to the position of authority that God wants you in, when you step in to your destiny, things will change around you. The people around you will change. The community around you will change if you're just willing to wait it out. To wait it out. How do I know this? I'm glad you asked. I want to read you something. Chapter of Matthew. Chapter 1, verse 1. It says this. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had Judah and his brothers. Judah had Perez and Zerah. The mother was Tamar. Perez had Hezron. Hezron had Aram. Aram had Aminadab. Aminadab had Nashon. Nashon had Salmon. Salmon had Boaz. His mother was Rahab. Boaz had Obed. Ruth was the mother. Obed had Jesse. Jesse had David. And David became king. But we are not finished. David had Solomon. Uriah's wife was the mother. Solomon had Rehoboam. Rehoboam had Abijah. Abijah had Asa. Asa had Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat had Jerom. Joram had Uzziah. Uzziah had Jotham. Jotham had Ahaz. Ahaz had Hezekiah. Hezekiah had Manasseh. Manasseh had Amon. Amon had Josiah. Josiah had Jochim and his brothers. And then the people were taken into the Babylonian exile. But we're not finished. When the Babylonian exile ended... 
Jeconiah had Shealtiel, Shealtiel had Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel had Ebiad, Ebiad had Eliakim, Eliakim had Azor, Azor had Zadok, Zadok had Achim, Achim had Eliad, Eliad had Eleazar, Eleazar had Mathan, Mathan had Jacob, Jacob had Joseph, and of course Joseph was married to a woman named Mary, and Mary of course gave birth to the Jesus Christ that we know who died on the cross for our sins and forever changed the landscape of this planet. Why? Because Abraham waited. From that, he had Isaac, which created a lineage which led to Jesus Christ bridging the gap of our sin between us and God. Think about it. Waiting changes us. But when we're done waiting, it changes a whole lot more. Go ahead and come up, Tosh. So we wait. We have our promises. We have our blessings. Our head knows. Our heart doesn't know. We struggle with it, but we wait. So what do we do? What do we do in that waiting period? I think a lot of times we think if we do more in the waiting, it'll somehow change God's mind. As if God was some kind of person that's up there going, he hasn't done enough yet. You think if you just maybe, maybe if you witness a little more, hey, that's great, do that. Ain't going to change God's mind. Maybe if you tithe a little more, which we are not opposed to, maybe it'll change God's mind. I will not give 10%, I will give 50% of my income. Surely God's got to take me out of this waiting period. Surely that's got to be enough. There is nothing you can do to move the hands on God's clock. Nothing. You've got to wait. When God says wait, you've got to wait. Abraham waited. Abraham waited for 25 years. Joseph waited for 13 years. And it was not easy. And Moses waited for 40 years years so what did they do when they're waiting what do we do when we're waiting because it just eats you up inside I don't want to wait anymore what do you do well the Bible tells us that obedience is so much better than sacrifice be obedient. You position yourself in a place of obedience and you wait. You wait. You wait. You wait in obedience. And God changes us and prepares us for what we're about to step into. Obedience. So much better than sacrifice. So much better than sacrifice. Nothing you could do, friends, to speed up that process. I think we wish there was an easy button that fast-forwarded time. Let me bring it down. I know there's a lot of personal things that we could get into about...